Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 in your New Testament, the final part of our series, The Challenge of the Resurrection. Talking about the whole resurrection experience, what Easter is all about, and what do we do now that Easter is over. So you can see on screen that the challenge of the resurrection is resurrection life. What do we do now? So we're going to talk about how that's always been an issue in the church. It's one thing to celebrate the resurrection. It's another thing to know what to do after all these celebrations are over. So we're going to talk about that today. Romans chapter 6 in your New Testament. As always, we pray as we begin. I'll give you a chance to pray where you're seated. Pray for those that you are familiar with that have certain needs. For our congregation, of course, for those in Ukraine, for our country. I'll give you a few moments of silent prayer. Where you're seated, I'll close and we'll look at this passage together. Would you join me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence. For the way you've worked with us, you have blessed us this week. We have eaten and slept in comfort. We have enjoyed the presence of those who loved us. We have loved and been loved. And thank you. We live in a wonderful place of safety and security. And we thank you for that. We thank you for these earthly blessings. We thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. Salvation. The indwelling spirit, your word, which teaches us. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection that no matter what, ultimately, you overcome all things and take care of us. Thank you, Father. We are wealthy. And all that is good comes from you. Thank you. Father, we recognize your grace and we are confronted with our own sinfulness. So we ask for mercy and forgiveness. We ask for your patience and a cleansing that... Only you can give. Father, give us a heart for a sinless life. Give us an, a desire for righteousness in our own lives and in the lives of others. Help us to share grace with other people. To recognize sin and yet to love anyway. As we deal with people who are making wrong choices and doing things that may offend us. Give us grace Help us to give that grace and love to others as did Jesus. Help us to be able to live our lives in a way that can show other people that there is a better way. And Father, this morning we pray that that better way might influence those on this earth. We pray especially for those in Ukraine, for all that mess. We pray for an end to the fighting. We pray for those displaced families and for comfort for those that have lost loved ones. Help us to use the powers you've given us responsibly. Help us to know when to get involved and how to do that and how to help. We pray, Father, for peace on this earth. In our own land, we pray for peace among the various political parties. We seem to do nothing but fight and disagree on everything. Help us to learn to stand together even when we disagree. We pray for guidance and wisdom. Use your church those at your disposal to teach truth and to teach a better way. 
pray for our first responders and their families. Give them comfort and guidance and protection. Lord, speak to us today from your word. Help us to learn how we might live because we believe in the resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David, it's funny you were talking about the guy who had finally paid off a car. You know, he lived his life with car payments. That's one of those dirty little secrets about buying stuff, isn't it? Those payments come and, and probably before it's paid for, you're going to have to trade it and those kinds of things. And it kind of sneaks in on you like that. It has to do with buying a car, sometimes buying a home, and sometimes even marriage. It's one of those transactions that we do, those things that we do in life, and we often focus only on the right now. I've got this new car, I've got this wonderful wife or husband, and all things like that, and we forget, or we just haven't realized yet, that after the initial new is over, there is a lifetime of things that have to be done to maintain that, to maintain that relationship, to maintain that vehicle, to maintain your house. My kids have been in their houses long enough where they think they get, they're getting ahead, and you know what's happened. After you're in a house 10 years, well, it needs an air conditioning system, and they do that. And then, in a couple more years, they need a roof, and they do that. And then they realize that their windows are bad, and they do that. And they're saying, my gosh, it just never ends. And we say, well, you're right, it doesn't. And that's part of it, isn't it? There are some things in life where you get into it. The dirty little secret is it's never over. And it's not necessarily a secret. We just tend to think about the warm, fuzzy things at the beginning in so many areas of life. Sometimes I think Christians get into it that way. I remember when I was a young kid growing up in church, it was all pretty boring nonsense to me. And then I became aware of who I was. And I realized that when the preacher talked about sinners, he was talking about me. And the longer the preacher talked, the more uncomfortable I became. And I literally became one of those kids that was hanging onto the ends of the pews. Remember when we used to do those long invitations to wear people down, I thought. And what was happening was the Holy Spirit was convicting me and I was hanging onto the back of the pew because I wasn't going to go forward. And finally I blurted out to my mom and dad, I think I needed to go forward. And they had the audacity to make me go talk to the preacher. And so they made me go and talk to that mean old guy. And he was a great old man, of course. And he led me to Christ that day. And I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. I knew I needed Jesus. I got saved, I received Christ as Savior, received the Holy Spirit, did everything just like I was supposed to, read the book, got baptized, and I thought I was done because I got saved. That's all I'd ever heard before. You get saved and that's it. Now that's not all the preacher had ever said, that's just all I'd ever heard. I heard what I wanted to hear, didn't I? And then somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit began to prick my conscience and, and I got into Bible study and I went to Bible study because there was this cute girl there, literally. And so I got there and thank you, Tammy, very much for being there. And, and all those kinds of things happened. And somewhere in that process of sitting through Bible studies and all those kinds of things, I realized that salvation, what I thought was the end game, was really just the beginning. That there was a lifetime of faith and faithfulness to come after that. I just never realized that before. That's the challenge of the resurrection, isn't it? 
The challenge of the resurrection isn't just believing in the resurrection and receiving Jesus. That's part of it. We've talked about that for the last several weeks. But that ongoing challenge of the resurrection is, what am I going to do now? Am I going to do anything differently? Or, since I'm saved, am I done? So the challenge of the resurrection is living like the resurrection changed you and made a difference in your life. On screen is something we can consider. We are united with Christ in the practice of our faith. Part of this resurrection life is realizing that we are connected with Jesus. We're united with him. Follow along with me if you would. In Romans chapter 6, I'll read the first nine verses. Romans chapter 6, the first nine verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. There is a tendency in the minds of church folk to think that after you get saved, you're done. And to be honest, part of that is the way preachers used to talk. They would talk all the time about trying to get saved. And, and there was this endless appeal for people to receive Jesus as Savior, which was good and strong and healthy. But oftentimes, we never did anything with that. And then we began to start talking about a thing called follow-up, which is trying to get these people that had made a decision to Christ to come back to church and get to Bible study. And they were finally learning things. But it was a difficult shift to make. And so a lot of people will still say, you know, I got saved when I was a kid. I don't have to mess with that. You would probably be surprised how many times I have heard that in my 40 years as pastor. And I'll talk to people about coming to church. Well, I, I got saved when I was a kid. Isn't that enough? And they literally say that and they mean well and they might have had some kind of legitimate experience and they received Jesus as Savior and they were baptized and they went to church for a while and then they got older and, and moved on. And they really believed that's all they needed to do. Well, I got saved, preacher. I'm saved. And I understand that because I've been there. When Paul wrote the book to the Roman church, he was addressing a particular situation. Now remember, these are personal letters that Paul wrote to church members and to churches. And so when he talks about something, he's talking about a situation. He's generally writing and teaching about something that he's heard going on in the church. So in the church of Rome, this is what was going on. People made legitimate decisions to follow Jesus as Savior. They got saved. They heard all the things. They did all the right things. They received Jesus as Savior. They were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. And they were continuing to worship. But that's as far as it went. The sinful lifestyle that they used to be in was still part of their lives. And they saw no reason to change. Now what had happened is, they had so focused on the idea of getting saved that everything else went by the wayside. 
because they got saved. And that's all they could think about. So Paul began to explain what was going on using the practice of baptism as an example of this new kind of life. Now in verse, in chapter 5 verse 20, you can see uh, the, the reason for the problem. Look at verse 20 in chapter 5 if you would. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. When Paul said that, they heard him say, when you get saved, you're done. Now that's not what he said. But he was explaining their understanding. Their understanding was when you get saved, the more you sin, the more God's grace is applied to you. And the more you sin, the more you're forgiven. So everybody wins. So they heard that. They didn't hear that something needed to change. They heard what they wanted to hear. If you go to church and you get saved, you can do whatever you want and God's going to cleanse you. And that's the easy way, isn't it? I got saved, preacher. Paul said there's more to it than that. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So on screen is something I call the resurrection effect. The offense of sin in chapter 6, look at verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So they were saying, well, Paul, why do I need to change? I got saved. And you said, and then they pointed, you said that the more we sin, the more God's grace is applied to us. And we cannot sin away our salvation. Because they picked up on this. this they picked up on the idea that if you get saved, God's grace overwhelms and covers all your sin and you don't need to worry about sin in your life because God's grace covers it. That's what they heard and they took it literally. And this is why Paul picks up in verse 2, may it never be. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? That's what they were doing. It was almost like a game to them. Let's just go on and sin because God's grace is going to continue. And he said, no. That's not what I'm talking about. You have missed it completely. They heard what they wanted to hear. We call it confirmation bias. You know when you hear a story on the news and only, the only things that click are things that you agree with? It's called confirmation bias. It's a thing now. But what it is, it's just people hearing what they want to hear. The people heard God's grace covers sin. And the simple understanding was, well, if God's grace covers sin, then it doesn't matter if I sin because God's grace covers sin. That's what the preacher said. I got saved. That's all I need to worry about. Paul said, may it never be. It was offensive to him. He really didn't understand how you could do that because here's the way it works. When you receive Jesus as Savior, you are cleansed from your sin. You make a life-changing decision. You receive the Holy Spirit. God gives part of himself to you to believe with you. God with us. Remember the old Christmas phrase, Emmanuel? God is with us. And then he gives you scripture. It teaches you. It challenges you. It shows you the way of life. And then he puts people in your life in the church, pastors and teachers and good friends who are Christian, and they show you how to live. And God does all those things, and those all come at great expense 
The great expense, of course, is the blood of Jesus on the cross. The church doesn't exist without the blood of Jesus. Good Christian people don't exist without the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. God's word didn't exist because Paul wrote it because he was a follower of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. So everything you associate with Christianity, salvation, Holy Spirit, Scripture, and all those kinds of things, none of those things would exist without that huge price of following Jesus and of Jesus' death on the cross. So to ignore it and take advantage of it and just not worry about it too much is just really offensive to Paul. He's saying, may it never be. You mustn't live this way. It came too much, too expensive. It's like buying a new car and never changing the oil. You wouldn't do that. You may wonder why and your mechanic gives you funny looks when you don't change the oil, but you need to change the oil on that car for the very reason that it's really expensive if you don't. Right, Leon? Someone doesn't change oil on your car, it don't move anymore. Somewhere along the way, it will stop. And so, because it's expensive, because it costs a lot, you maintain it. That's the thinking behind this salvation that is in Jesus. Because it costs so much. Jesus' death on the cross is something that you ought to invest yourself in and you need to maintain it. And it doesn't mean you have to do works to keep your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. It's because what you've been given is of supreme value, eternal value. And because it's worth it, Paul says, invest in it. Another thing on screen, our unity with Christ. This is where he talks about baptism. Look at verse 5, still in chapter 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So he's talking about that ritual of baptism. And I explain this to people when I baptize them. In the ritual of baptism, we take the believer... The newfound believer in Jesus, they're saved, they're already saved, they have the Holy Spirit. Baptism doesn't save you, we know that. But when you go underneath the water, there is that symbol that you believe that Jesus died and was buried. And when you come up out of the grave, out of the water, you are showing that you believe that Jesus came back from the dead. So that's one aspect of baptism. You show what you believe as you go underneath the water and you come above, you're showing this is what I believe about Jesus. But there's more to it than that. When you accept Jesus as Savior, Paul explains that you, in essence, put to death yourself, your old desires. So as you go underneath the water, you're showing that that old part of you that is steeped in sin, you've put that to rest. And when you come out of the water, you're saying that you are going to live differently, that you're going to live the resurrected life. Because you're Christian. Not because you have to, but because you choose to. You want to. You want to honor the Christ that has saved you. You want to keep this thing going. You understand that there's more to it than just getting saved. And so when Paul says, you are raised to newness of life, that's resurrected life, like Jesus did. We remember from the resurrection appearances, that after Jesus' death and burial, he came back from the dead, and there was something about Jesus that was different. And we don't really understand. Sometimes people recognized him and sometimes they didn't. It seems as if he could just appear with having to go through doors. And there was something different about Jesus, but he was still physical. He still ate. 
People touched him. He talked to them. And they began to recognize him and all those kinds of things. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. And so he still has this physical form. It's not exactly like what we have. It's different. Jesus' resurrected life was different. Paul is saying, your resurrected life is to be different. It's up to you. It's not a threat. It's an encouragement. He's not saying, if you don't do thus and so, you're going to lose what you've got. That's not what we're talking about. He's saying, since you're saved, there is a lifestyle that goes along with that. That's that resurrected life, raised to newness of life. So he's talking to Christians that have only heard, get saved, and go on about your business. That's all they wanted to hear. That's not all they'd been preached to, by the way. The preachers had been doing their good job. It's just they only heard what they wanted to hear. Instead, they needed to hear the rest of what the gospel meant. Live your life as a resurrected life. The thing about the resurrection is it continually urges us to walk a life of faith. That is the resurrected life, a life of faith. In chapter 6 of Romans still, look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be a master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. The challenge of the resurrection is this concept that we have gotten rid of in our culture. Personal responsibility. Who is responsible for the choices you make as you choose or do not choose to follow Jesus? Well, that's my mama's fault because she didn't go to church enough. No. That's my daddy's fault because he worked on Sundays. No. You choose. And this biblical idea of personal responsibility is best exemplified in this understanding. It is your choice to live the Christian life. And it's your responsibility to live the resurrected life. When you received Jesus as Savior, your mom and daddy didn't do it for you. When you chose to receive Christ as Savior, that was you and God making that intimate, personal decision. No one can do it for you. No one can take it away from you. No one can give it to you. It's up to you and you alone. People can help. People can guide. People can sway. But ultimately, it's your choice and decision. So, living this Christian life is up to you. It's personal responsibility. If you choose to go to church or not, that's your choice. You can't blame it on your spouse or your kids. You know, people do that. Well, my kids keep me busy so I don't have time. I get it. It's nonsense. People don't go to church because they choose to not go to church. I get it. You know, I deal with this with a lot of the child care parents. Say, well, Kevin, I'd come, but we're just busy. My kids are busy, etc., etc. And I understand. And I talk to my kids and they're their kids are getting to the age where they're in sports and sports practices are on Sunday. And I understand all that business. But ultimately, they are responsible for their decisions. And they can't push it off on their coach either. Parents have to make a difficult choice. Sometimes children, sometimes adults as children, that's us, have to make difficult decisions to choose to prioritize religious faith and, and Christian nurture and those kinds of things. It's your choice. No one can do it for you. No one can keep you from doing it. Amazingly enough, when churches are in persecuted areas, 
the churches do well. That's the amazing thing. The friendlier a culture, a church, the friendlier a culture is towards faith, the less effective churches tend to be. But when Christians are put in a place where they just have to choose hard choices, the church does well because they choose to follow Jesus, and it costs. The church is doing great in Ukraine, by the way. Christians are still gathering. It's illegal. Well, it's under wartime. But they're still doing what they can. In communist countries where it is illegal, the churches are doing well. It's amazing how God works. In verse 12, he says this very simple thing. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. So he's saying, this is your choice. Don't let sin reign. Don't let it have control over you. People are going to sin. We understand that. And so, you know, you do. We make choices to sin. But he says, don't let it have control over your life. Don't let it have control over your family. Don't let it have control over your thought life. So this is where personal responsibility kicks in. You have to examine yourself. You can't blame it on whether someone else points it out to you. You can't blame it on the preacher because his sermons are too long or too short or he's too young or too old. You can't blame it on Nate because his music is led by guitar or whatever. You know, people come up with all sorts of reasons. I've heard them all, believe me. I've said most of them myself. And so have you. Ultimately, it's between you and God. Don't let sin reign in your body. Examine your life. Take personal responsibility for you. You can't fix anyone else. But you, with God's help, can fix you. So, examine your life and see if, if your attitudes are consistent with your faith in Jesus. If they're not, own it and accept it. Responsibility for it. Say, God, I'm a bigot. God, I'm a sexist. God, I, I, I've got a problem with lust and pornography. Whatever it is, own it and accept it. And to say, God, help me to change that. Because no one else can change it for you. No matter what it is. If you're a gossip. Or if you just don't like certain kinds of people. Folks, that's up to you. You can't blame that on anybody else. I was raised a little white boy in a little white town by a man who had been raised as a little white boy in a little white town. He had been raised by a man who had been a little white boy in a little white town. And on and on it goes back. You know how I was raised, don't you? Sure. And I thought the way I was raised was wonderful. I didn't know any better. And only later did I realize that a lot of those attitudes and, and words and things that I picked up over those years, well, they were just evil. I didn't know that, really. Because the people I love taught me this. And I had to realize that what I was doing, even though it was what my daddy and granddaddy and great granddaddy taught me, you know, that was me. I couldn't blame it on them anymore because I was no longer 11 years old. So I had to own it and accept the fact that, you know, this is a part of me and I got to get over this business. Fast forward 50 years and guess what I'm still struggling with sometimes? The way I was raised. Is it my daddy's fault? No, it's me. I'm an adult. Time to put on my grow-up pants, right? You're the same way. We develop ways of thinking and, and we don't even know it. Our sin becomes a blind spot. And sometimes what we have to do is examine ourselves and step back a little bit and say, okay, I'm a Christian. Let me look at my life 
and examine how you think and talk and act, what you value or don't value. How do I treat people? How do I treat my spouse? How do I talk? Etc. And test your who you are by biblical teaching. And if there's sin there, well, like Paul says, don't let sin reign in your flesh. You choose. In verse 13, he says it even simpler. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, whatever you give yourself over to is what you present yourself to. If you give yourself over to sin, you're presenting yourself as a body of sin. But if you present yourself over to God, it's, you're presenting yourself as a gift of righteousness. So you have to think in, in those terms. And it's kind of a spiritual way of thinking, which may be foreign to a lot of us because of our culture and all that. But he's saying, think of your life as a gift. How are you going to live your life? How are you going to present it to God? Are you going to live your life as a gift where you've given it to God? Or are you going to do something different? If it's not given to God, it's given to the flesh. And that doesn't mean you're an evil person, but it means you're not devoting yourself to God. And so it's a choice that you have to make. And again, you just have to own this. It's not anybody else's fault or doing. You can't blame how you think or feel on anybody else. Now, if you're 11 years old, yes, you can blame it on daddy or mama. But if you're 30 or 40 or older, you're an adult, people. It's time to grow up. Time to accept who you are. And you have to act accordingly. The faith that you have in Jesus came at great cost. The death of Jesus on the cross. This resurrection life only came after the crucifixion. Jesus walking in newness of life could only come after he died. And the newness of life that you can have can only come after you put to death the old self. And that's what Paul is talking about here. On screen is just a final thought. The final challenge of the resurrection is for us to live a resurrection life this resurrection life is different and better because of our choice to follow the resurrected Christ. You will be better than you, better than you are now, the more you follow Jesus. It doesn't matter how you compare to anybody else. That is absolutely irrelevant. The goal is to be better than you are. To allow God to bring the best out of you because he created you with a certain lifestyle in mind. So the challenge of the resurrection life is to live it. To be honest with yourself. And when you see sin, to deal with it. Like removing rust from a car or cancer from a human body or something like that. Sometimes it takes a, a difficult cost, a surgery or something, to remove something that's tainted. And replace it with something that's better. But you can do this. The Holy Spirit is within you. Scriptures can teach you. There are good people around that can help you. That's the value of the church, by the way. Live the resurrected life. Step up to the challenge of following Jesus. And allow God to work with you today. We're going to have a hymn of invitation this morning. 
Nate's going to come and lead us, a chance for you to respond to the gospel. As we sing this song, let me challenge you to ask Jesus to save you if you haven't done that. To consider how you might turn over more of your life to God's leadership. And live that resurrected life. Would you stand with me as Nate leads us? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you for evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. going to come and lead us in a closing prayer. You'll probably be able to find Russ out in the hallway wandering around. He's with the kids today, but today is his last Sunday. Be in prayer for him, and I hope you remember to get a card for him. If you forgot that and you'd like to get him something, I think he's going to come in tomorrow and clean out his office, so let me encourage you to bring a card in, maybe a gift or something. Terry, would you come and lead us? Thank you. Will you pray with me, please? <clears throat> We've heard the words, we understand the words. What the hard part is, is application. Almighty God, help us to apply ourselves to you. Help us to share the love that you have for us with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>